You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, our special guest is Dr Rosie Falano, a psychiatrist who works at one of our largest public hospitals in Victoria, the Alfred Hospital. In this podcast, we will examine how doing something you don't believe in can cause us harm. Rosie, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and the type of work you're doing now? Hi, Joe. Thank you for inviting me today. I'm a general adult psychiatrist and I do some work in the community, so community mental health. I work on an acute adult inpatient unit and I also do a little bit of work on the medical wards in the the main hospital. What's been the impact of COVID briefly um, to your work? Well, I think there have been a number of um, changes for me that have felt quite big. So one of the first things that changed was the identification that people like me who move from site to site have the potential of coming into contact with COVID and moving it around. So from very early on, where I worked changed and I withdrew from the medical wards and was just in the community and the inpatient unit. And then I physically also withdrew from the community team and just was located in the inpatient unit. And more recently, we've started spending some of our time working remotely. And all of this has been to sort of maintain the workforce. Because of course, if one person comes into contact with COVID, they need to be quarantined. And if all of us come into contact at the same time and everyone is quarantined, there's really no one left available to do the clinical work. I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit more detail about how the COVID pandemic has influenced access to mental health services in general. So what's changed? I think there's been identification that there are core services that are necessary, that you know, really basic things like administering medication is very necessary and needs to be maintained. Having contact is also necessary, but what we you know, what we look at is does the contact have to be face to face? Or can we make use of technology? And of course, you know, for years in rural communities, people have been using telehealth. I guess we've not really thought so much about that in the urban setting because we've not had to, but there was already the model of telehealth. And so that's one thing that's been made use of. And what's been your experience with the virtual presence? Because if I recall, historically, psychiatry was really about the face-to-face interaction and being with the person. Yes, so that's a really good point because I came with a particular bias where I felt communicating on a computer or by phone just couldn't work and that it's just strange. And I realised that, yes, it was strange, but that was the main barrier for me and that when you allow people the opportunity that our patients rise to the occasion. And so I guess if you divide it into groups, when it's with people who you don't know, it is I find that it's harder but it's still possible to provide a service. And there's, you know, there's individual variations. Some people take very naturally to the use of technology and are very comfortable. Other people 
you know, sort of hesitate and feel that it's uneasy and feel that, you know, is this really the doctor, you know, and you, you do feel that lack of connection. So, Rosie, the article by Neil Greenberg in the British Medical Journal listed five potential sources for moral injury. It's been defined as psychological distress that results from the actions or the lack of actions which violate someone's moral or ethical code. The first one is where I have to follow a decision made by someone else and I don't agree with it or I think it's unethical or immoral. And an example of this in aged care would be, I feel a resident needs to go to the emergency department, but either the general practitioner or the hospital admitting officer in the emergency department has said they're not appropriate because of the pandemic situation. How does that play out emotionally? What happens to me in terms of my thoughts and emotions in that sort of situation? Well, I think that probably the most initial common one is is anger, anger and frustration. And then I think that horrible feeling when you, you know, you've tried your best, that horrible feeling of not being able to come to terms with that and feeling a sense of guilt of perhaps being, you know, a, a participant in a system you feel could be better, that sense of failure that if perhaps you could somehow argue in a better way or reframe the problem in a better way to get your beliefs across and maybe make a change. Do you think that calls into question or a person's self-confidence or does it make you think I'm not good enough to be a doctor or a nurse because I can't get my point across? I think, yes, certainly people would think that way. But I think it becomes a personal failing because sometimes the setup is such that good and obedient doctors and nurses do what they're told and are cooperative within the system. And it's almost, you know, in unpleasant workplaces, a failure to cooperate with the system can actually be seen as a problem with you as a person, that perhaps you're being unreasonable or over-involved. So it can become very complicated. And I think if you're, if you're someone who is trying to advocate for their patient and really wanting to do good, and then have that reframed as, well, actually the issue is there's something wrong with you. You don't understand your limits. You don't understand your role. I think that can also be very damaging in causing distress and in causing dissatisfaction and disillusionment. And then, of course, you know, there is that guilt that, you know, health professionals often are very passionate about saving people. And then there's that guilt of maybe if there was some other way And I guess that goes to your point, if I were a better speaker, if I were someone regarded with more authority or regarded more seriously. And do you think that that's one of the issues that has led to absenteeism that we've heard a lot about in pandemic situations? People have reported that 20 to 40% of the workforce might not be available. And most of us have considered that would be because they're in quarantine or have had an infection. Do you think that being asked to do something like this would contribute to people not wanting to go to work? Sure, yes. I mean, put forward hypothetically without knowing any of the stats, you would imagine that that would be the case. And certainly, you know, in other studies looking at what causes burnout and disillusionment in the workplace and, you know, lack of power, lack of autonomy, lack of your decisions making a difference are the things that wear people out. 
and make people unable to go on. So it wouldn't surprise me if we did interview people after this and, you know, interviewed looking for the reasons for absenteeism, that this sense of having to do things that you don't agree with would be a reason why people just have to withdraw for a while. The second issue that was raised is failing to report so that you're not disclosing serious clinical incidents near misses or bullying. Rosie, why would people have trouble speaking up in when they're advocating for the resident or their patient? People can be quite vocal and angry and speak up. And the next situation is one where they're failing to speak up, but not reporting incidents, not reporting bullying of themselves or colleagues. Is that due to the sense that the situation's tough and we've got to forgive every transgression in behaviour? Look, I, I think it can be. I think, again, you, you look at the you know, people who get involved in healthcare and there is a tendency for people working in health to be self-sacrificing or at least to be, you know, to wish to be viewed that way. So I guess to start with, if people are feeling bullied, that's always difficult in any setting where, you know, if, if you speak up, you wonder whether you will be believed, you wonder whether you'll be punished. You know, often if you're talking about bullying, there's that big power differential so if you're being bullied by someone more senior who has power and authority over you, will you know, is there someone more senior than them? Who can help you? Who can get it to stop and who can protect you? If the issue then is coming up at a time of stress to the system, such as a time of a pandemic, then, you know, would you worry that if you're speaking up about bullying, would you worry that that might be misinterpreted, that in fact, you know, you're cowardly, unlike all the other people who are, you know, willing to do things or willing to tolerate things. You know, that thing that is often turned against people who speak up about bullying, that thing as well, it's actually, it's, you know, you're not being bullied. The issue is you, you don't fit in, you don't work hard enough, you don't cooperate. So I think in, in times of stress, people would just be more aware of that as well. You know, will I be viewed as a coward? Will I be viewed as lazy? I could see that happening. The third example is... I put my patients or residents or colleagues in danger because of my inexperience in the situation, my inability to make a decision, or that I'm being asked to do something I don't usually do. If we're helping now, so I'm stepping up, I'm doing something that I'm not familiar with, but I know it's got to be done. And if I don't do it, then it won't happen. Why can that hurt me? Well, it's, it's quite interesting because um, I don't know if you saw, but the medical board actually sent out a letter saying, you know, a lot of you might be asked to step up and don't worry, you won't, you know, if something goes wrong, you won't get into trouble unless, of course, we think you've done something wrong. So there's this sense of if you're stepping up and helping, but what if it turns out you make a mistake? Would it have been better just to have been quiet? Like if you hadn't have stepped up, maybe someone more able would have. And so, you know, are you putting people at risk by trying to help? And there's also that being in fear that by trying to help, if something goes wrong, will you then be accused of having been, you know, grandiose and working way outside your role and causing harm in that way? The fourth one I would like your insights on in that, you know, I've been at work, I've done my full shift, I've done everything I can. I know the situation is difficult. 
And then I hear that things have gotten worse after I left. Why is that something that's difficult to cope with? I think that situation reminds me of the concept of survivor guilt. You know, something bad happens and purely by chance you're not affected. And that, that can happen in the workplace where, you know, you, you're connected to your team, you're connected to your patients, and if they become overwhelmed, hurt in some way, witness a terrible incident, you sort of think, well, gosh, I'm lucky not to have been there. But with that comes, you know, a guilt that, well, you know, I, I survived and they didn't. That doesn't sit comfortably with people. If I'd been there, maybe I would have seen this happening. I could have intervened or if I'd been there, it would have at least been another pair of hands. All of these things run through our minds. How do we stop ourselves talking about the what-ifs or the if-onlys? The problem is in traumatic circumstances, getting stuck at that if-only, 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 and what-if, it's not productive. And the fact that you're getting stuck there is indicating level of distress and kind of a, you're so distressed you've kind of got into a loop or you're failing to process. So all of us will think what if and if only, but the key is to identify when it's going on a bit too long and you're not coming to a conclusion. And often in these settings, the answer is, you know, at the time you were doing the best you could with what you had available. Just want to deal with this fifth one, which was the one that we've seen in particularly in Spain and Italy and in part in the UK where, you know, healthcare and aged care staff feel let down because they're working with insufficient resources and staffing. And, you know, we think that this could have been avoided. My immediate reaction to that is, look, I'd just be incredibly angry. I've turned up to work to do my part. Why isn't everyone else doing their part? I think it is not advisable to not allow yourself anger. It's uh, anger is an emotion that has a place, but that shouldn't be where you stop. So, you know, the anger is signaling that there's something wrong, something you disagree with. It can be used constructively. It can be used, you know, to, to motivate you to speak up and look for change. It can just even identifying it helps you understand that you're under stress and you're going to need to take special care to reduce your level of stress. What if I took the other approach and I say, well, I'm here, I'm ready, but everyone's just let me down completely. It's just, there's no point, I'm walking away. Well, that is an approach, but it leaves you powerless. And if if what you really want to do is walk away and you can come to terms with that and not feel, you know, a couple of weeks down the track that you've somehow failed and that there was an opportunity for you to make a difference and be left with guilt, that might be the consequence of just saying there's no point, I'm going to walk away. Or, you, you know, there are people who would say, I'm not participating in this, I'm walking away, and, and feel that that's, you know, reasonable, feel that even if they had participated, there's such a lack of resources and the structure's so poor that there wouldn't have been a good outcome and they, they themselves would have just been damaged. So what do you do? You know, like, you, you know, you make the best of it, you try and be innovative, you speak up if you or your colleagues have been asked to do something really, really dangerous. What sort of mental health problems might arise from not being able to resolve that sort of internal conflict? 
Well, I think probably the, the most common is initially the anxiety where people feel, you know, the physical symptoms of anxiety. So I just feel physically unwell, tummy upset, headache, aches and pains, so fatigue, disruptions in sleep, and then things that changes in people's mood. So ir- irritability and, you know, the onset of depression, I think would be the most common. And because people have also talked about that with the hand washing and the idea that this is an infection, the people who have a tendency to obsessive compulsive disorder finding, you know, increased hand washing or increased rumination. Your suggestion is that managers need to be proactive and take steps to protect the mental wellbeing of staff. What does proactive mean? I think proactive means anticipating. And I think the anticipation of how stressful the situation could be is very important. And then providing education to staff and being very open that it's that it is recognized that this is a stressful time and that we are human beings and that human beings respond to stress in particular ways. Just acknowledging is a way of being supportive. Having space for discussion, like both casual discussion but formal discussion. You know, giving people input into any sort of changes in practice. So, you know, if teams are going to be divided up, ask people about that. Ask people how they think it would work. Ask people what they anticipate might go wrong. Just to give people the sense that they have some power in the situation. And, you know, I don't, it shouldn't be insulting to be asked about how you're going. That should be regarded as, you know, a human compassionate act for some person, for someone to reach out and to ask. I think if you're a manager and you're telling the team that there are risks and, you know, you anticipate difficult times, you also then anticipate your staff will be unsettled and might feel panicky and, you you know, you address that specifically, you know, you avert it. I think being frank and providing information is very important and you let people know what will be in place to support them. No, I agree with you. I think that, uh, you know, people, both residents and patients, trust the aged care and healthcare professionals to, uh, with their lives. And I, I think that as a manager, you'd want to be honest with your staff because our staff do have the maturity to understand and manage the situation better. If you had one piece of advice to give to the aged care workers in maintaining their mental well-being, what would it be? So I think it's a it's the standard advice we always give, which is to have that personal routine, to have that personal structure to your day of you know enough sleep, enough rest, the right food, and enough contact with the people or the things that you love or that give you meaning. You know, regardless of the worry and stress you go through when you're at work, you know, you have that structure at work as well. You know, have your colleagues at work have your place where you sit and have five minutes to yourself. You know, have that sunny spot, have that cup of coffee or cup of tea, but also when you leave work, keep that structure that keeps you knowing who you are and what your values are and keeps you strong enough to deal, you know, with the additional burden at the moment. If you find that that's not enough, then you reach out and talk to someone. There is no shame and no failure in finding that you're becoming overwhelmed. You know, feeling overwhelmed is just a demonstration that you're a human being. 
On that note, thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Joe.